Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Time to have a little fun. I mean, the literature shows that we have to be proactive in our health. We have to exercise, eat right. But more than that, mindfulness, music, laughter, meditation, all have been found to support health, improve immunity, and help with pain. So humor is very important, so we'll look into that today. I remember when I was younger reading about Norman Cousins and how he locked himself up in the hotel room and dealt with this debilitating autoimmune disease, uh, ankylosis, spondylitis. He dealt with it by laughter, watching funny shows. Then I remember reading about Dr. Burke, who was doing research on how laughter helped with immunity. And in medical school, I found this so intriguing I went to have dinner with a man named Patch Adams, who's a doctor whose whole approach uh, centers heavily on laughing, and it was quite fun. So we're going to delve more into this, and with us today we have Dr. Richard Patel and his son, Alex. So uh, they're here, they just wrote a book, and they're going to tell us all about laughter, and feel free to throw in some jokes, or if you want to go into song, that is good as well. Thank you, Dr. Susan Downs. This is Dr. Richard Patel. I'm not so sure about the singing, although it will definitely get a laugh if we go there. But we do have a lot to say about humor and laughter, so thank you so much for allowing us to be on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, and welcome, Alexander, as well. Should I call you Alex? Yes. Anything you'd like. Alex, Xander, AP. Don't leave leave it that open, or you don't know what I might come back with. (laughs) Okay. So tell us about your book that you just wrote. Thank you for asking. So the name of the book is Pee-Pee's Anti-Joke Book and a Brief History of Humor. A novel, sort of. A sort of novel, that's correct. We liken it to something by Nabokov, perhaps Pale Fire. Well, maybe that's a little bit too much, but it does have that feeling of having a narrative, uh, footnoted by facts that run together to tell a bit of a story. It does talk about our, our um, ancestor, Pee uh, Pee Patel, who was able to survive the Russian Revolution through using only his wit. Um, but we're going to be focusing more on the scientific facts regarding humor and laughter and the benefits to people in everyday life. And we're really appreciative of being on Occupy Health because I think it's a perfect forum to announce that not only exercise and diet is important, but also sort of your attitude towards living. And that's what we'll be talking about a bit. Um, probably one of the biggest reasons we wrote the book is because uh, my son Alex is going through high school. And I don't know if you know about high school, but Alex, do you want to? High school is brutal. It is rough. People are mean, gross obnoxious, and just straight intolerant. Things become extremely confusing for me, and I found that survival is best found in humor and laughter. For me, I'd like to personally find those people in high school that I create problems, and I like to face them personally 
with such jokes as, I may be stupid, but at least I am slow. Woody Allen's big in high school, isn't he? Kind of he self-deprecating. <laughs> That's where the book began. Alex started coming home with these jokes that are known as anti-jokes. And Dr. Susan Downs, do you know what an anti-joke is? No, what is it? Okay, here, we'll give you an example. It could be several things. It can have a, a really obnoxious punchline, kind of something way off base, or take a normal joke and twist it around. You... For, for example, uh, why are fish so smart? Well, it's a typical me. punchline would be because they swim in schools. <laughs> but that's not an anti-joke. An anti-joke would be, why are fish so smart, Mr. Patel? Why are they? It's because they don't. <laughs> They're not. They're not. <laughs> They're not smart. They are fit. So he started coming home with these punchlines, and it was really quite fun. We ended up, uh, I would be watching him do his homework, and every so often I'd ask him how he was doing, and he'd throw one of these jokes at me. And I started asking him, why are you getting so much into humor? And that's when he explained to me it's, it's a survival mechanism. And we started um, together kind of looking into that a little bit, not just so far as jokes, which our book contains hundreds of anti-jokes, but also so far as the science behind humor, and what is it anyway? Uh, imagine this. You're an alien coming from another planet, and you land on Earth, and somebody approaches you, shakes your hand, and starts saying, you know, knock, knock. Who's there? Well, I don't remember a good knock, knock joke. <laughs> Come in. Come in. Right. Come in. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Come in. So it does not seem like a natural thing when you look at it um, objectively, but we as individuals respond to it. And perhaps we can take a moment um, to explain where humor comes from, because really to understand the power of humor, you have to know uh, why it evolved. Um, let's, let's start with us here. Uh, a neurologist, a very famous neurologist, I'm sure you've heard of him, V.S. Ramachandran. I think he's down at San Diego now, UC San Diego. He's written a bit about laughter and that it's a critical human function. In fact, it seems to be an instinct. Um, even deaf and blind children um, can laugh with, or, and to smile without being taught. And it seems to be similar across all languages and cultures. So it truly is something that's, that's part of being human. But I actually think, and, and the research shows, that it has been around even before we've been human. Um, I think we have time for another story. Let me give you an example. I was down in Corcovado. I don't know if you've heard of this national park. It's in Costa Rica, in, in Central, uh, Central America. Beautiful place, lush, lush canopy. And up in, up in the canopy, there are all sorts of monkeys. They have squirrel monkeys and capuchin monkeys. And I was actually kind of tracking in my, my amateur, uh, <laughs> amateur way a group of howler monkeys. And I was just beyond their sight, but when they noticed me, they started doing certain movements, and the troop became very quiet. But as soon as I presented myself, and that they saw that I was just some balding guy in Bermuda shorts and a flowery shirt, they started making these kind of herk kind of noises. I, I don't know what that sounds like to you, Dr. Downs, but it was kind of a, a heavy breathing, panting kind of noise, very dissimilar to a human chuckle. But a lot of evolutionary biologists believe that this was the precursor to laughter, that it in fact communicated a retraction of a threat. So I was not a jaguar creeping towards these people, um, but that's what they thought, or these, these, uh, these howler monkeys. 
But that's what they had to assume initially. As soon as they noticed that I was a tourist in, a, in Bermuda shorts and a flowery shirt, then they started their form of laughter, which was this breathing to indicate, oh, nothing's really wrong. It's just a tourist coming to look at us. People oh. have actually done studies on this, um, uh, looking at tickling. Um, tickling is quite different. It is a little, you're right, Alex, it is a little different. It's more like combat practice, but uh, uh, Dr. Marina Dalvia Ross at Portsmouth University in Great Britain, she actually looked at tickling um, bonobos, chimps, gorillas, orangutans. Can you imagine Dr. Downs getting a grant for tickling primates? It sounds a little... And never, 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 no end of surprises of what our government spends money on. <laughs> it's the kind of grant that I'm going to go for. In any case, she was able to achieve this, and she actually found that um, the closer on our family, evolutionary family tree a primate is, the more it will sound like us. So bonobos and chimpanzees that are a little bit more like humans, they do have laughter-like sounds. Um, further away on the family tree, like gorillas and orangutans, they, their laughter is more like that of the howler monkey, more like panting and clicking than a hearty human chuckle. But again, it all seemed to begin as a communication of a retraction of threat. Although, I have to say that all primates do exhibit laughter, and they all absolutely love to crack jokes. They do crack jokes. <laughs> I know. Go ahead, Alex. I'll let you and and weren't there studies on rats and tickling rats and have them laugh? You know, that's interesting. Rats do, you know, tickling is one of those things that I think is, as I said, it's a preparation for combat. All of your, your ticklish spots are in very vulnerable parts of your body. So if you can imagine uh, bonobo monkeys or small children wrestling and tickling each other, they do laughter to indicate that I'm okay, this is not threatening, let's continue tussling around and wrestling with each other. Once it gets a little bit too aggressive or painful, that laughter stops, obviously, and another sound is communicated like, ow, get away from me. But the tickling is believed by a lot of researchers to um, be a, a way that people can practice self-defense in combat and alert the other individual that it is non-threatening and to continue. One, Why uh, do humans laugh? You know, that's a really a good question. And I think there's really three main reasons that humans laugh. I think the the one we've sort of described a little bit, and that's sort of the reduction of tension. When there's tension, such as if I, instead of uh, being in Bermuda shorts and a flowery shirt, actually was a jaguar, well, that leads to a lot of tension. And when the bonob, or I'm sorry, when the howler monkeys discovered I wasn't a jaguar, then they laughed to communicate and to reduce tension. And that actually is the second thing that humor. Uh, does it? It promotes socialization. Yeah, yeah. It, it, in high school, exactly as Alex was saying, that's one way to get those big bully enemies to become your friend. As you joke with them, and instantly there's a bond that forms. Alex and I were doing a lot of research um, regarding humor and reading a lot of different books of a lot of different eras regarding humor. And one thing that was not mentioned that we highlight a little bit more is that humor is tied to learning. When you are presented with information that's in conflict with the heuristics of your mind, you know, with the ethics, the morals, with the everyday logic that you live by, our initial reaction is to reject that. We say, nope, that doesn't fit into my scheme of what's real and not real, so I don't want to hear it. 
humor is one of those things that seems to cut through those defenses and allow people to at least listen to, if not perhaps at times embrace, different points of view. I think that's why a lot of shows such as Saturday Night Live are so popular. They talk about some very edgy material, as do stand-up comics, but they're able to get, um, get away with it because they're, they're behind the mask of humor, which um, instinctually says, hey, this is not threatening, let's check this out. So those are probably the three main ways. But you can't really... Um, you can't really even start to laugh and to have humor unless you're in what's called the comic space. Do you know what the comic space is? What is it? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> We're going to tell you. Okay, I think it's time to put on... Nose and glass. Our nose and glass. I think it's that time of this show is to put on... So, uh, Dr. Downs, I don't know if you have the, the nose and glasses that you've been provided, the, the Groucho Marx nose and glasses, but we're going to put those on. You got yours, Alex? Yes. Okay, I got mine. Now, I look about the same as I did before, but Alex now looks more like uh, Groucho Marx. Ten years older. <laughs> Maybe ten years older. So what this does, whether it is uh, nose and glasses or a rubber chicken or an unchanged in inflection as comedians will often do, or, or somebody says something, hey, have you heard the one about? All of those cues tell our brain to suspend reality and dull our brain's empathy circuits, meaning that we're getting a message from whoever we're watching or listening to that what's going to come next, you should not be threatened by, it's harmless, and go with the flow. Without that comic space, you can run into trouble. Um, you shouldn't tell a lot of jokes about weapons in line at the airport, for instance. That is just yeah. not a place where nose and glasses or rubber chickens are going to fly. You can't get in the comic space here. But we do it on purpose. You know, a lot of us every night will turn on the TV on comedy programs or go to a comedy show or joke with our family and friends. So we do this quite often in order to reduce tension, promote socialization in community, or the third one that we're really trying to espouse is to promote understanding of ideas that might be a little bit outside our usual uh, realm of acceptance. So why do we laugh? <laughs> why do we laugh? Once again, we have to go back to the, the, <laughs> the chimpanzees and trees. That's where we get the socialization. If we have an internal chuckle, it doesn't promote that communication that what is going on is non-threatening and bind people together. Um, you know, I, I got to tell this one. Or <laughs> I got to tell this one little story about Coco the gorilla. I don't know. Do you know Coco the gorilla? No. We'll tell you about Coco. Well, the gorilla. Uh, Coco the gorilla was a forty-two-year-old, or is a forty-two-year-old gorilla with an IQ of roughly 70, living in Santa Cruz Mountains, just south of San Francisco. Coco has been taught over a thousand American Sign Language symbols. That's the gorilla version. The gorilla version of the sign, language. Version of sign language. Let's be clear about that. As well as 2,000 words. But one person noted that Coco slyly nodded her keeper's shoelaces once and then signaled Chase <laughs> to, to trip. Which I love that. So this gorilla... <laughs> Uh, unknown to her keeper, uh, tied the keeper's shoelaces together, went in front of the keeper, and then sign language, <laughs> chase me. <laughs> that, 
to me, that is a joke. And that, that actually speaks a lot towards sort of the origin of humor, the history of humor within um, the human species. We really love what Coco loves. Ever, before Shakespeare, humor was all slapstick, fornication, poo-poo, you know, that kind of stuff that Coco the gorilla really could get into. And even since the beginning of time, we have we do have the oldest joke. Oh, well, if, tell if, us what is know, it? Sure, why not? Uh, it's good. You want to hear that one? The oldest joke was told in 1900 BC in southern Iraq, and it goes something along the lines of something which has never been since the beginning of time. A young woman did not fart on her husband's lap. <laughs> So I guess you had to be there. You probably had to be there in, in southern Iraq in 1900 <laughs> B.C. But a lot of the old jokes that we find um, in the museums uh, that we believe are jokes really have to do with sex and poo and all those sort of bodily functions that may be a little bit um, tension-producing that people are trying to relax about. After, after Shakespeare, though, around that time, things really started to shake up. Um, uh, it got much more uh, sly. Uh, it got much more um, subtle, and it really towards sort of anti-jokes and the kind of, kind of jokes that we talk about um, in, in our book. Uh, there, there actually is uh, a laugh lab in, at the University of Hertfordshire in, in England. Uh, Richard Wiseman is kind of a famous joke studier, and he went through uh, thousands of people and tens of thousands of jokes to try to figure out what the funniest were. The funniest jokes seem to be those that caused a feeling of superiority over others, a realization of misconception, or attention due to edgy or sensitive topics. Uh, Dr. Richard Wiseman also came up with the world's funniest joke. And I'm going to tell it to you. Great. <laughs> Why not? Two hunters are in the woods when one of them suddenly collapses. Uh, he doesn't seem to be breathing, and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his cell phone and calls emergency services. He gasps, my friend is dead. What can I do? The operator says, calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's silence on the phone. Then a gunshot is heard. Finally, he's back on the phone, and the guy says, okay, now what? So again, we think this is hysterical. <laughs> Perhaps we need to put on more nosing glasses. But that's, in his review of all these jokes, the funniest one, because it does a couple different things. It's, it shows an inconsistency. Uh, we're superior to these people because we feel smart. And also, we know it's just a joke. Nobody, nobody actually died, <laughs> which is good. And in fact, moving to perhaps some of the me medical utility of humor, maybe that's what we should kind of dive in. Well, I want to ask some questions first. Uh, do we all laugh at the same things? Do we all find the same things funny? We certainly do not. <laughs> There's a wide variety in what people find is funny. I think people certainly do laugh um, more so with several different things. There are several kind of fun fact, uh, facts that we know is that, um, for example, kids, kids happen to laugh three times more than adults do. Yeah. Along with the social laughter occurring 30 more times than solitary laughter. So, so we're more apt to laugh when we're kids. <laughs> we laugh at everything, maybe as a coping mechanism. I'm, I'm not sure. Certainly in high school there needs to be a lot yeah. of humor. But also um, in, in a crowd of other people. Laughter is very contagious, 
And I think it really goes back to the neurophysiology of the origins of laughter, which was a means of communication that there is it's a retraction of a threat. So I think when we hear people laughing, we certainly laugh more. And for listeners, if they wish to kind of test some of this out, there's something on the net called the Skype Laughter Chain. If you want to look at that, of course there's lots of funny shows out there, but if you want to look at the Skype Laughter Chain, basically it is a bunch of people laughing at each other, and as you see, as you watch it, you'll start laughing too, just because laughter in itself seems to be funny. Well, can we laugh without any stimulus and we just decide to laugh, or do we have to think of something funny? <laughs> I just laughed then. Well, you're right, and that's because laughter comes in many forms. It's a way to communicate, hey, I'm with you. For example, if uh, the boss roars in and then leaves the office and you have a coworker sitting there, you might say, ha, ha, boy, the, ba- the boss is really angry today. Or you might say, ha, 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 great weather we're having here. These are ways to alleviate the tension that separates people and allows people to bond. Because in both of those examples, it's not really funny that the weather's nice or that the boss was angry, but that little giggle at the beginning or the end of the sentence can initiate a bond between the listener and the person telling the little tidbit. So we need a stimulus in order to laugh at it? Oftentimes, yes. I mean, certainly people do not laugh in solitary very often. They do. You might read a really funny book. Oh, I, I laugh all the time you, when I'm alone. <laughs> you might be a special case, Dr. Jones, <laughs> but I think for most people, and you know what, I, I can't say that to be true, because I think a lot of people, when they're feeling tension, they utilize laughter as a way of getting that tension down, resetting their circuits in such a way that they can pay attention to whatever trouble might be ailing them, and go on with their day. Without that, there, there are certainly a lot of other ways to get rid of tension. We meditate. We exercise, things like that. But laughter is something that we always have with us. We don't have to go to the gym. Uh, There was a researcher who looked at cardiovascular function uh, who actually said that laughter uh, may not be a substitute for uh, a workout, but it's certainly cheaper than a gym membership. And I think that's good. That was a good one. That's a good one. Can we tickle ourselves? You know what? That is that is a really good question. What what was the the ten seconds? It takes ten seconds of laughing. Laughing. Oh, you were talking yeah. about the workout yeah. thing. Well, one, it's difficult to tickle yourself. But um, he, Alex was mentioning uh, another researcher who looked at uh, heart rate and blood pressure and equated ten seconds of really big belly rolling laugh to um, a ten minute rowing workout. It uses, seems to use the same amount of energy, maybe not the exact same muscles, but there's something to be said about a big, hearty belly laugh uh, for cardiovascular health, and that seems to play out in some of the, the research as well. Yeah, some of the research shows that it uh, lowers arrhythmias, the blood pressure, uh, urinary epinephrine and norepinephrine, need, lead less nitroglycerin for angina, a lower in, recur, a lower incidence of recurrent heart attacks, etc. Uh, oh, you got it. And, and blood again, flow. I, a lot yeah. of good things. These are all good things. So, you know, and including for, for people with mental health difficulties, um, you know, I, I mentioned the, you mentioned the cardiovascular health. You talked about cortisol a little bit, I think, in there, the epinephrine, norepinephrine. I remember the last guest on your show, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig, was talking about um, serotonin being part of happiness and dopamine being more part of pleasure. 
And the problem with the dopamine is you can get tolerant to it, such as people who have addictions to opioids and things like that. It turns out that laughter initiates both the serotonin and the dopamine system, but as far as we know, there is no evidence of becoming tolerant to laughter. It's not something that you overdose on. The, the nucleus accumbens keeps on uh, spitting out the dopamine to keep you happy and pleasured, as well as the serotonin system is operating um, to keep you feeling happy, too. So that's the one drug you can't really overdose or become addicted to is laughter. Well, there have been some incidences where it has resulted in harm. Um, for example, um, uh, let's see. Uh, you know, I mean, there have been some cases uh, like this guy, great- Alex Mitchell, who died uh, because he was laughing and certain health conditions. It would be a little bit, uh, you so need to be cautious. I've got to tell you the story of this guy. So this is back in 1975 about an Englishman, Alex Mitchell. Named Alex Mitchell, who died laughing at Kung Fu Capers, <laughs> an episode of the TV show The Goodies, featuring a bagpiping, kilt-wearing, black, putting-armed Scotsman master of the Lancastrian martial art. Yucky thump. Yucky thump. <laughs> After 25 minutes straight of pure laughing, Mr. Mitchell slumped to the couch and died from heart failure. Later, his widow thanked the writers of the goodies for making her husband's last moments enjoyable. Now, we, it is true. <laughs> this gentleman died after laughing 25 minutes straight, which it sounds like about a six-hour rowing exercise if you equated it to the other researcher. But, you know, we, we can't really blame laughter. Perhaps he would have had a heart attack anyway. We could certainly note that his widow was thankful to the writers of the show. She wasn't uh, suing them or anything. She was thankful that he was able to go laughing. But, yeah, uh, it's, it's not a good thing to have a big, hearty belly laugh if you're driving a car or in other situations where you could be harmed. But other than those few instances, it is really hard to find uh, negative regarding regarding laughter. Yeah. Other incidences might be if you had a hernia or a jaw dislocation or stress incontinence. That could be embarrassing. But, but it's worth the risk, I believe. I believe, I believe so, too. Well, what do you say we go through some of the, the real places where um, health seems to be benefited by laughter and humor? Let's just dive right okay. in this thing. How does that sound? Well, just one question first. Are there different kinds of laughter, like nervous laughter, excited na- laughter, happy, tense, laughing if someone else is, wit, sarcasm, clowning around? Uh, what kind of different kinds of laughter are there? You know, I'm glad, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because really the neurophysiology of humor and laughter, where this is driven in the brain, there's really two main circuits in the brain. And it is true that some of these cross over, but for things like involuntary laughter, that emotionally driven laughter, where you just hear something and are just rolling on the floor, belly laughing and aching and you're crying, you're laughing so much, that seems to be processed through non-frontal lobe circuitry. So it's through the amygdala, the thalamus, the hypo and subthalamic areas, and something called the dorsal tegmental area of the brainstem. And again, this is due to that laughter where you see somebody do a prat fall, they slip on a banana peel, do not break their hip, but land and then get up. That kind of involuntary laughter really seems to be more the primitive, instinctual kind of laughter that just comes out real heartily. 
But there's also a voluntary system. I described the, the person saying, ha, 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 the boss seems to be angry today. That's a little different because it operates in more of a socialization, the socialization areas of the brain. It originates in the prefrontal and frontal um, cortical areas, and then it goes to the motor cortex and the pyramidal tract and vent ventral brainstem to coordinate the very complex uh, respiratory movements that have to occur with laughter. So there are really two main tracks for laughter. The involuntary system, which is tickling, or the gentleman slipping on the banana peel and you just start laughing in hysterics. And then there's a voluntary, is what it's called, system, which is more in regards to socialization and communication. Well, I've noticed that choirs singing together, groups chanting, meditation, they kind of, uh, the research shows they synchronize their brain waves and heart rate variability. Is it similar with laughter? Oh, definitely. I, I think, you know, this whole, this whole field of sort of laughter studies began a bit, um, you were talking about uh, Norman Cousins uh, earlier on the show. Yes. Yes. Think a little bit. So as, as you described, he's a writer-editor of the Saturday Review. And in 1964, I guess he wrote an article about his ankylosing spondylitis, a very painful collagen illness, attacks connective tissues, and it is very painful. People do not get a lot of sleep. Um, Dr. Cousins uh, wrote about after 10 minutes of genuine belly laughter, and he goes into some of the things he did in order to stimulate this, uh, it had an anesthetic effect, and it helped him sleep pain-free. Later on, he went over to UCLA, conducted a, conducted a bunch of studies on the uh, effects of emotions on the immune system, and published something called The Anatomy of Illness in 79. But that article really started a whole wave of people appreciating humor and, and um, laughter as a means of taking care of a whole host of medical problems. Um, actually, the very first uh, down at Stanford um, near where, where you're at. Uh, William Fry is a professor down at Stanford in psychology. He actually was the first one to um, apply for grants to study laughter. I don't think it was to tickle primates, but it was to study humans <laughs> laughing. And he looked a lot at cardiovascular health at that time. The same thing back then, uh, Patch Adams began as well looking at laughter. In the clinical setting, he founded the, the Gazootite community, which is uh, a free clinic that um, where laughter, they have laughter groups. And along the 70s and 80s, that's when laughter really started becoming big so far as in medicine. Uh, yoga laughter clubs started, or I'm sorry, laughter yoga clubs started, usually free in parks. Um, there, was, there are now uh, forced laughter uh, uh, you can, and if you force people to laugh in some of these groups, um, it turns into real laughter, and people feel not only better pain control, a, a better sense of well-being, and confidence to be able to tackle what they need to tackle. There um, now, if you just look at what types of groups do um, utilize laughter, I think about fifty percent. Well, fifty percent of cancer patients have uh, espoused laughter as being part of their medical regime, that they consciously try to do this because it helps them tolerate the chemo, the pain of their disease, and to be more confident about going forward. Um, and about 25 of these groups actually have it in cancer support groups, actually have laughter as part of the regiment. Wow. Yeah. Well, isn't, I mean, if you've got something like mirthful laughter, isn't that sort of like a meditative state? 
It, well, it does. I, again, I don't know if you've ever experienced one of those belly laughs where you're just rolling on the floor. You're completely lost control of your respirations. You can't talk. Your eyes are tearing. That is, it, it's an active meditative state. You are not in a place where you can communicate normally. There is some other system that's taken, taken control. And when people get to that place, there are uh, several things that take place that can have benefits on health. I mean, the most obvious we've sort of went over is it decreases stress hormone levels, and that's associated with so many problems. So you're decreasing your epinephrine, your norepinephrine, your cortisol, and even just with sort of mirthful laughter, there have been studies shows that it decreases the levels of these, um, these hormones. And, of course, well, chronic stress. A couple of other questions. Yeah. Does this laughter connect us? Absolutely. I think laughter is one of those things that uh, causes us to be, uh, well, and that's the, probably the primary goal of laughter back in the day with the, uh, the howler monkeys up in the trees. They were connecting together to signal that I wasn't a jaguar, but I was some guy in my Bermuda shorts. And so I think that's <laughs> yeah. the beginning of it. From that, from that pathway, though, you know, I'm certainly as humans, we've integrated that to connect us in a lot of different ways around very difficult subjects so um, can sub, if you don't like somebody you can involuntarily laugh at what they say if it's funny if you don't like somebody you know humor has certainly been shown that if you know or like the comedian you're going to laugh a lot more so it is true that we may be using laughter as a bit of a defense you know against maybe that feeling of not liking that individual interestingly freud of all people. Uh, Sigmund Freud was a big uh, promoter of laughter. He wrote his very famous interpretation of Dreams book, but he also wrote an interpretation of Jokes book. Um, and in this book, he really believed that humor um, was a... Uh, well, he, of course, was going... He was more on the, the sex side of things, so he felt that humor was a defense against our our most secret... Um, how could I say this? Uh, desires that we can't speak of. Um, he really, in his in his uh, jokes and their relation to the unconscious, because that's actually his book. He associated associated his joke work to his dream work. He said that humor is a is a deliberate uh, mental expenditure, and it's connected to a lot of other mind activities. But it's used to stabilize conscious and unconscious reactions to assault or surprise. He felt that it was a pretty healthy defense, too. This was one that he really promoted, uh, and he didn't believe these were random. He, he uh, believed they were real intentional acts. There's a, there's a gentleman by the name of Gershon Legman who, my goodness, talk about the king of joke research. This guy reviewed 60,000 jokes, and he put them into categories that um, I won't list them all because there are, some are kind of dirty, um, but there's food dirtying and uh, sexual smorgasbord is one of his chapters, sputum and vomit, defiling of the mother, and it goes on and on and on where he categorized these jokes. But the interesting part of this is that he believed that your favorite joke is your psychological signature. In fact, it's the only joke you find funny, which I thought was kind of interesting that if people laugh at the same kind of jokes or tell the same kind of jokes over and over again, it may be actually revealing something about their character that likely they're uncomfortable with and trying to gain some superiority over. Interesting. Another question along the same line. Uh, I notice some people laugh at what I say, and I'm only mildly silly, but some people are laughing at it all the time. What does that mean? 
Well, it may, again, we have to go back to uh, three different things. One is they're laughing because they're nervous. They could be nervous about your intelligence or, or your position as a radio host um, or just who knows why. They're just nervous. So that's one reason a lot of people will laugh. The second is they want to bond with you. If someone laughs at what you're saying, even if it's not very funny in your mind, it's probably because they want to join with you and, and be friendly with you and say they agree with you. The third thing, and again, these are the three functions of laughter we really want to get over there. It's to release tension. It's to socially. It's to bond people together. And the third one is we really believe that it helps convey information. It helps us better accept new information that perhaps in the past we didn't think of or it didn't fit into our usual, uh, as I said, scheme of how we believe um, the world should be. Now, what's the youngest they've seen of people laughing? Oh, my goodness. Uh, there, if you look at that Skype uh, chain laughter, it starts with a baby. And there's nothing like babies giggling to get you laughing. Uh, I think it's because it's a good bond between the adult and the child. The baby starts laughing, you start laughing, and then you're all feeling good together. So humor is one of those things that take, takes place very early in life. If babies do not smile and laugh, it really can indicate something's going on with their central nervous system and, and their brain, and it might be worthwhile of chatting with your pediatrician if uh, a year has gone by and your baby still hasn't been laughing or smiling. That usually indicates something is going on. Yeah, because it helps uh, increase oxytocin, which is the binding hormone. A lot of other good stuff, too. But before we get to that, uh, do women laugh more than men? You said that kids laugh more than adults. Yeah, I got I got You know, we're having kind of a feminist revival right now, which I really do appreciate. If you look at a lot of the shows on TV and movies coming out, a lot of them are really kind of saying, you know, let's be strong, we're equal, etc. And I think that perhaps if we redid this research now, we may find something different. My belief, and again, that I I can be argued, is that perhaps women have had a greater. societal pressure to be accepted and um, it isn't they haven't really been applauded for using power and confidence they often have been accepted because they are um, agreeable likable and so I think when the past research uh, was done looking at women versus men and women laugh I'm going to say like three times more than men at things um, it may have been because the societal pressure excluded them um, advancing using other means that males use. Males can be authoritative and demonstrative and ex- exhibit power. And traditionally, women have, be, have been shunned. And so they're left with uh, what they are left with, which may be, in fact, being personable, communicating, bonding through laughter. I, I don't know that it's because women have a better or worse sense of humor. I think that may be part of socialization. I agree with you on that because of the socialization issues and and how we were supposed to be behaving and uh, laughter we could communicate if we get it in there quickly before the guy gets bored with listening. But it also makes us more attractive, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, there's nothing like a – who is it? Uh, Joni Mitchell said – uh, oh, what is the song here? I'm, I'm losing it. Uh, a smile is a facelift. It's better than a facelift. Something like that. I'm sure one of your listeners knows this song. But it is true. If you're laughing, if you're smiling, you are much more attractive. Um, it says that the, um, 
<laughs> well, uh, yeah, but Groucho Marx said, a clown is like aspirin, only he works twice as fast. <laughs> so that's, that's a little different. But with, with the attractiveness, there's no question that if you're smiling and laughing, uh, it communicates this is a person who is happy. It also probably communicates this is a person who's healthy that I want to be with. Um, and that's been noticed for a very long time in, in different Well, let's get on to some other aspect because I, we've discussed many causes of diseases, inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, all exacerbated by excess cortisol and gene environmental interactions. And it appears that laughter will help with all of these. It increases our endorphins, our BDNF, which is helps us for new habits, helps in depression, helps in a lot of different things. So it sounds like laughter is going to hit every single metabolic pathway in the body. It sure feels like that. And it looks like that looking at the research. I think a good place to start looking at where um, humor and laughter can be helpful is stress. We all can relate to stress. We all know it rises cortisol and epinephrine and norepinephrine and all that stuff. And we've seen research that um, decre- decreases the level of cortisol, epinephrine, and including growth hormone as well. Uh, and we know that chronic stress certainly affects immunity. So for most people who are undergoing stress, whether it's uh, you know, somebody who's undergoing chemotherapy for cancer, where you have a formalized laugh group going on to support you, or you're just having a tough day at work and you need to release some tension, people know to come home and to turn on something funny or listen to something funny or tell jokes, and that helps them feel better. It also, as, as I think you mentioned, it releases endorphins, those natural painkillers that we have going on in our, our body. And they've done, there are studies done. There was one really pleasant study where, where college students were forced to watch the, Sim, the Simpsons, Friends, South Park, or stand-up comedians like Eddie Izzard, Ellen DeGeneres, Phyllis Diller. And in these experiments, they would do little um, uh, electric shocks. So as you're giggling to these various comedians, they would shock you and then later ask you to kind of rate the pain that you could tolerate in all these different experiments, uh, watching comedy as opposed to watching natural geology or science shows, shows about rocks and things that weren't so funny. They could tolerate pain a great deal longer than those who, who weren't uh, undergoing the comedy therapy. And that's, there's probably three reasons for that. Uh, one is that Humor distracts. It distracts people from pain. It, it also lowers tension levels, as, as we know. And if you're tense and undergoing pain, it's going to be a lot worse than if you're, you're not. And it, then it does actually release endorphins, endorphins also, those natural painkillers. I think that this is a very underutilized technique. And, and when we think about what's going on in this country regarding the opioid crisis, the number of people that are overdosing, the number of people that are trying to get help but still relapsing, we need to really utilize every tool we have to release those natural endorphins and help people tolerate coming off these opioids such as heroin and morphine, etc. Absolutely. So what are some of the health what is some of the other health research show? Oh oh boy, this is very exciting. So it also as as we've mentioned before briefly, it boosts the immune system. And you know, I do not know the mechanism of this. I don't think anybody knows the mechanism of it, but it started back in the nineteen eighties when folks were researching this. You mentioned doctors uh, Lee Burke, uh, one of the associates Stanley Tan over at Loma Linda University were some of the first ones who were looking at um, laughter boosting specifically T cells. Uh, immunoglobin antibodies, the IgAs, et cetera, and the beta cells. 
Um, a lot of those studies looked at easy stuff because it's easier to look at like salivary antibodies A, and those are IgAs. And what they found in this study, they used Richard Pryor Live as the <laughs> as the thing uh, treating or getting people laughing. And this was back in 1985. They published this study, and in fact, they found that the salivary IgAs that reside in the mucosal areas of the mouth um, increased almost double fold. Uh, and interestingly, I think this is really great. Interestingly, they show that children who were laughing, that is fourfold greater IgAs in the salivary glands that are produced. And they also connected it to they don't catch colds as much. I thought this was really interesting. And other studies have gone a little further to say that um, looking at the effect on the natural killer lymphocytes, now called non-B, non-T, null cells, uh, but these can, can lyse tumors. Uh, they were looking at, oh, here, here we go. With the, with the IgAs, they noticed that it decreases uh, Epstein-Barr, uh, monos, <laughs> mononucleosis, uh, herpes, and influenza are all affected by the same class of IgAs. So I find this really a great reason beyond all the other great reasons you might have to laugh with your kids. In having an environment that releases tension, that encourages laughter, in fact, people might not get as many of these kind of seasonal colds and flus that are always going around schools and the rest of the population. I thought that was that was kind of fun. They, uh, in doing this immunological research looking at um, folks with a little bit more serious diseases, I mentioned the, the natural killer uh, cells, those non-B, non-Ts, or null cells. Uh, those are really important in treating or the body's own defense against leukemia and sarcomas and uh, carcinomas and melanomas. Um, and it's, they've been found to increase as well with folks that are laughing. Now, whether or not it translates into actual better treatment for those individuals is unclear. I, I haven't been able to find studies looking at that. But it seems to me if laughter boosts your immune system in the number of cells and the amount of antibodies that are coming out, I think that might be a good thing to add to the regimen when you're going through a serious illness. What about diabetes? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great – obviously, diabetes can be caused by various things. Um, I look at it as sort of a cardiovascular health thing. So diabetes, as you know, it's created by the – pancreatic beta cells not producing as much insulin, or by the peripheral cells not being able to really register that insulin is un enough to, to take up the glucose and do what it needs to do. I haven't, find, I haven't found evidence in regard to laughter's specific effect on either of those, but I do know associated with diabetes is people over time can develop pretty poor cardiovascular health. They can develop heart attacks. They have a lot of, a lot of other issues that can have strokes due to cardiovascular health. And there's no question in the research that jokes and laughter protect the heart by increasing blood flow. Um, even in infants, if you watch an infant smile, uh, the heart rate increases by five beats per minute just by a smile. Um, I, I think you mentioned, or maybe it was me, who mentioned Dr. William Fry down at Stanford University. He was one of the first ones back in the 60s and 70s to look at uh, cardiovascular health and equated that 10 seconds of vigorous laughing to 10 minutes of rowing. Um, but there's another gentleman by the name of, uh, by the name of uh, Michael Miller at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and he looked at uh, uh, patients. He was actually measuring brachial artery blood flow and oxygenation, 
and the blood flow increased in those that laughed. And this lasted some time after the laughter uh, decreased, too, from 22 to 35 percent. And he's the gentleman who said, maybe on top of the gym, you should probably do 15 minutes of laughter also to maximize uh, cardiovascular health. Well, some of the researchers saw, like, after watching a funny video, after a meal, they had lower blood sugars than if they watched a serious movie. And they were postulating that the laughter affects the neuroendocrine system monitoring the blood glucose level or may affect the energy used by the stomach muscles. It's kind of interesting. I like it. And a big hearty laugh, there's no question that you're exercising yourself. I think if you fully engage in a big hearty belly laugh, you're using 52 muscles and you're burning a lot of calories to do that, including the degree of respiration that increases in your heart. So you are getting a bit of a workout once you're laughing. It's hard to, it's hard to maintain that for too long. But um, to me, it sounds much more pleasant than going to the gym. But that, that's just my own personal <laughs> belief. Yeah. Uh, also, some of the research, uh, Bushwa showed that laughter increases the energy expenditure and heart rate. So 10 to 15 minutes of laughter can result in 10 to 40 calories per day. So it can help in weight loss as well. I like it. This evening when I go to the gym, if people start hearing me laugh, I don't think they'll know what I'm doing, but hopefully they can appreciate the the, the exercise value of it. The, the other place that we have not touched on, and I think it's 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 critical, is really look at looking at psychological health. Uh, our, our we believe that one cure to mental illness, and this is a strong belief, in fact, is jokes and humor. Yeah, uh, humor, as as we said various amounts of times, humor ties us together. Laughter occurs 30 times more often in a group than one alone, which, as a benefit, is fantastic. It promotes socialization. And along with this socialization, it helps us through adversity, as well as claiming to relieve burdens, inspire hope, decrease stress, and alleviate pains and conflict. Yeah, and, it, and well, well said. You know, all those things r- relieve those in despair. And with mental illness, uh, there's certainly, whatever your diagnosis may be, there's a tremendous amount of despair. You know, interesting thing about mental illness is um, right now we're still pretty primitive in the way that we describe uh, uh, psychiatric problems. We'll call things bipolar. We'll call them schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive. We all have all these labels, but they really are made by symptom checklists. It does nothing really uh, in regards to the pathophysiological processes that lead to these disorders. Well, isn't it the same processes we already mentioned, the inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, etc.? Exactly. And what you're really describing there is a different set of criteria. That's the research domain criteria, which kind of transcends our, our usual DSM menu-style diagnostic system. It doesn't really look at a checklist of symptoms, this research domain criteria. In fact, it looks at the neuropathology across many diseases. And there are some pretty standard things that we see in all mental illness. Uh, Neuroinflammation, I think you might have mentioned that. So we see that the immune system is triggered in any kind of acute episode of mental illness, there's inflammatory cytokines that are running around the brain, interleukins, tumor, necrosis factors, C-reactive protein, all these, all these inflammatory markers that are, in, uh, are very important with acute illnesses. But unfortunately, when they stick around, they can cause damage unto themselves that seem to be associated with mental illness. 
We also get glutamate pathway abnormalities. That's a stimulatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, we have... Um, yes, we had Dr. Reed talk about that recently. Oh, terrific. Yes. And elevated cortisol levels. All of these things seem to be connected, including um, uh, the shortening of telomeres. I don't know if you know what telomeres are. but Oh, absolutely. The shortened proteins on the end caps of chromosomes. And they seem to shorten with every repeated cycle of mitosis and aging. But... They seem to shorten quicker with chronic stress, smoking, poor diet, obesity, infections, inflammation, free radicals, all that kind of stuff that we know. Doesn't so we're do getting close to an end. So let me put some points in here that kind of complement what you're saying. So the studies have shown that laughing helps increase BDNF, and that is something that helps with depression. For example, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, they increase BDNF, which might be one of their mechanisms. And, it, and as uh, Rick said, it increases the production of serotonin and studies have shown that music therapy and um, laughter have helped. Now Lee Burke's studies also had some other interesting things in in addition to decreasing the stress hormone that is cortisol that laughter improved learning delayed it helped with memory recall and it increased visual recognition. So I've got one other question because in my studies it looked like that when you laugh with somebody as opposed when you laugh at them, that those are different neurological pathways? Uh, well, so far as the neurological pathways, it certainly shows a different intent. Um, under the theories of humor, there's, you know, we talked about reducing tension, promoting socialization and learning. But Plato, Socrates, Thomas Hobbes, Descartes, all of these people, they didn't like humor because it was, seemed to be a superiority over another. It wasn't laughing with somebody. It was laughing at them. And it is questionable regarding the health benefits of something like that. It may be a bit along the lines of slapstick, but these, these philosophers and thinkers really believed it was not good. It was a schrodenfreude, my German is terrible, but it was that schrodenfreude laughing at another's misfortune that they didn't think was conducive to a healthy life. However, well, the studies do show that laughing at decreases something called the prefrontal posterior coupling, but which just means there's a different mechanism involved, because it sounds like a little more sinister and negative than to just the good old belly laugh. So we're coming very close to an end. So like in the last minute, would you like to summarize the wonderful positive benefits of laughter? I sure would. So in, in short, there are three main things that laughter helps and humor helps. Humor helps reduce tension. It promotes so humor promotes socialization, and humor is all about learning. It is it's about our understanding of theories of humor. I think when anyone finds themselves in a pickle, when they're really struggling with something, whether it's with a partner, with a job, in life, it's good to take a break. Most folks say take a walk and breathe. I would say add to that a little bit of laughter. It can certainly reduce the tension that you're experiencing, help you feel connected with the world and people around you, and it may help you look at your situation with a different uh, lens than you first went into it. So, again, let's get those 15 minutes of laughter in a day and try to lead a more healthy life. And I couldn't agree more. So in addition to doing our own research to help ourselves and others, and working with our providers, I think we need to go out and get a lot of good belly laughs and share that and share the love with that. And so, uh, audience, I ask that you be well and have a good laugh. Thank you for listening. 
Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.